From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCowry. This week at the Marriott City Center in downtown Minneapolis, Minnesota, site of Circularity 19. On this week's edition, the sights and sound of Circularity, Google's Circular Ambitions, Bill McDonough on Healthy Materials, and why the Ellen MacArthur Foundation doesn't talk about sustainability. We're talking in circles this week on 350. It's June 21st, 2019. Welcome to this week's Circularity 19 special edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from right here and from her home birth state is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Joel. Great to see you in person. It's always fun when we're in the same room doing this podcast as opposed to disembodied voices from various, uh, across various countries or oceans as it's been the past couple of weeks. Um, this is a launch event that we'd never done this before. Uh, and, uh, you know, back when we started marketing this, we stuck our fingers up in the air and said, you know, let's, how many people should we expect? And we said, I don't know, it'd be cool if we could get 500 people. And we had to cut this off at 850. So I think it sort of speaks to the level of excitement, if not ambition, on the circular economy right now. Yep, and I was... Um privileged enough to, to be co-host for the sidebar, the virtual event that we ran in conjunction with this physical event this week. And we had thousands, literally like 4,300 people um, at least wow. at one point today. And um, wow, you know, just from all over the world, so much interest in this issue. Yeah, that's more than we usually get. We usually get, you know, one, 2,000 people tuning into the live stream of our, of our events, but that's an impressive number. Yeah, we actually opened it up. Um, we, we usually gate it, and we opened it up, and boom. So lots of, lots of people are interested. So we're our, that's our intention is to get this thought leadership out to a broader audience. So you're monitoring the chit-chat on, on the web, the Twitter and, and other things. I'm wondering if you can summarize sort of what, what you're seeing. What are people talking about out there as we put on this event? So one of the things that um, really resonated, and, and I think we're going to play a clip a little bit later, um, and maybe you'll cue it up since it was your interview, but when uh, you had Andrew Molay from the EMF um, talking talking on uh, the first day of the conference. So EMF is the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and Andrew is the CEO. The, the thing that um, really created a lot of Twitter buzz um, right away was when he mentioned that he doesn't talk about sustainability and his team doesn't talk about sustainability. They talk about circularity in terms of, obviously, I mean, circular economy, but in economic terms, in terms that everyone as a stakeholder can understand because this is not a sustainability issue. It's a revenue issue. It's a operations issue. It's a engagement issue. I mean, it has so many ramifications. And so that really resonated very well with the audience. Um, and, you know, something else that we're going to get to in a moment as well is this, this notion of, you know, if you're going to circulate it, you better make sure it's okay and safe and can healthy healthy you know do you do you really want to put that thing back in circulation or do you want to somehow take it out of circulation and use it in a better or less bad uh, way yeah. so what was kind of fun and, and remarkable in some ways for this launch event is that we had uh, on, on day one certainly some of the founders of 
of circular, circular economy, uh, Andrew Morley, as you mentioned, is the CEO at, at, at EMF, and um, Bill McDonough, who is the co-founder of the Cradle to Cradle concept and the co-author of the book and co-creator of the framework that's now lives within the Cradle to Cradle Product Innovation Institute. Um, all, by the way, all those organizations and many others, about 12 of them or so, are, are, are partners of ours in this. And so we really, uh, it was fun to be able to launch this event with some of the real people who have helped create it. Yeah, there's one other point I'd like to make, and this is particularly of interest to me because I am, lo and behold, like way back in a former life, I used to cover enterprise software. And so the, you know, the, the systems that, that the big manufacturing concerns use and, um, you know, the supply chain software. And that for me, I've always been fascinated by the, the transparency issue and how do you really talk to the supply chain and get them involved. And, and for this to work, it's not, a, it's not an option. Um, and that really came across today. There's so many complex issues. There is not a black and white. You're going to be talking about trade-offs. You're going to be talking about changes that are part of your business model in order to make this work. And, and changes that are part of the, the social fabric. And that was a point that you, you made early on in the conference. This, this, it's about systems change. And it's not just about like the physical business systems. It's about social systems. Yeah, how does this create opportunities? You know, as Andrew Morley said, we, they don't talk about sustainability when they talk about circular economy. And yet I do think that what's going on right now in this emerging circular economy is benefiting from everything we've learned about sustainability over the past 30 years or whatever um, in terms of internal buy-in, in terms of making the business case, in terms of uh, cross-sectoral collaboration, public-private partnerships, um, the, you know, the role of policy, uh, all kind of a storytelling, communications, and as design. you said, design and, and, and disclosure. And so all of this is really you know, coming to a head and it is standing on the shoulders of the sustainability movement. And, and yes, I, I totally get and honor uh, Ellen and Andrew and, and their great crew uh, specific uh, intention to not put this in a sustainability box, really. So, but, but there is a lot, there is a more of a, of a connection there than I think some people want to acknowledge. So let's play a little clip from the conversation I had on Tuesday at part of the opening session with Andrew Morlay. In nine years, this idea has come from virtually nowhere to uh, being pretty much everywhere. Yeah. Um, but we've got you know, a tremendous amount more to do. I think we've mobilized the idea and now it's at that inflection point, as you said, that we're, we're really now looking to sort of scale that up. And you almost never, maybe if ever, use the word sustainability. Yeah, we, we don't. If you go to our reports, um, the, the way that we've framed this topic is really about the economy. And you know, I think there is, um, many people in the community who are very strong on the sustainability or green or climate agenda. There's a bunch of people in the middle of that are fairly neutral yeah. and there's a group that really just don't, don't buy into it. And what's interesting, when you talk about the economy, it's a topic that everybody buys into. Sure. And this is about a better economy because it, it has better economic outcomes, better social outcomes, better environmental outcomes. It's about creating wealth rather than just extracting, extracting wealth. And uh, it's an economy that makes sense because it can run forward into the long term. 
And I'd like to bring us back to another thing that I mentioned a moment ago, which is uh, it has to be safe if you want to make it circular. And so I'd like to, at this point, cue up a clip from Bill McDonough's presentation on that issue. One of the things we saw in China when we introduced circular economy with the Chinese many years ago is they start by thinking it's all about recycling. And the question becomes quickly, if we're just recycling what we made yesterday and it was toxic, what are we doing? So I want to focus in on the details of what it means to be circular. And it's so wonderful to see what Ellen MacArthur's been able to do with what we've just seen with biomimicry. This is all fabulous. I just want to focus on some of the details. The, the issue is retox. Retox. So what is that? Eco-efficiency is what happened after the Earth Summit. Let's be more efficient with everything. But what if we were doing the wrong thing? And we did it perfectly. Then we're perfectly wrong. Whoops. So the question becomes eco-effectiveness. How do I do the right thing? In a fundamental way, we look at this human economy we've just been hearing about, and we talk about goods and services. But wait a minute. What if we had bads and services? What if it wasn't goods, it was bads? Oh, and then we have a circular economy. Oh, and then we do it again. Hmm. Then the circular economy is not a good if it recirculates bads. So the question is, what is a good? And what is good behavior? Interesting, because what are we doing if we keep doing the wrong thing over and over again? Retox. So being less bad is not being good. It's being bad by definition, just less so. So the question becomes, what is the good? So that's really what I want to look at today. We're going to get really into with some fun here. Now, the butterfly diagram you see is they point out at Ellen MacArthur is based on this, which is cradle to cradles nutrient cycles, biological and technical. So when we're designing, we can say, am I designing for the biological, biological cycle metabolism or the technical metabolism? Meaning, is it, can I go back to soil safely? Can it be on my skin safely? Biological things, technical things, go back to industry ad infinitum. This is really the, the partition which we find very useful as we start to think about design. And it's great to see that it's being adopted globally and certainly by, uh, as it was, was pointed out today. I love that. So that's an important idea as we design. If being less bad is not being more good, but we want to be less bad, of course, we also want to be more good. What we can do, and the way we look at it this way, is what we call upcycling. You have an infinite number of choices. Some are good, some are bad. You decide that. That's a values decision. A value decision is less and more. A values decision is good and bad, right and wrong. Right? So, what we can do is put these two on the same chart, and we can say, let's get rid of all the things we don't, because zero is a dignified goal for toxins, absolutely. But on the other hand, what if our goal is 100% fabulous? So we do both at the same time. So we get rid of the things we don't want, and we do it all the way to the molecule. We do it with cities, we do it with buildings. It's fun. But we can also go for the fabulous. And a third clip, also from the opening day, was Kate Brandt, who's the Chief Sustainability Officer at Google, talking about Google's strategy going forward and some of the commitments it's making. I loved um, the focus that they have on revenue, right, and making, they, they make, I think she said hundreds of millions from the server components that they take out of their data centers and refabric, you know, remanufacture and get to other organizations. So um, they did announce a new goal to, uh, to use finite resources, right, to make sure that they really decrease the amount of resources that they're using in their operations. So she did, declared another goal from the stage. And here's a highlight from Kate Brandt's talk. So is our demand for stuff inherently unsustainable? 
or is the issue with how we take, make, and waste it? So as you all probably know, since you're here today, our global economy runs on billions and billions of pounds of materials that's extracted, grown, manufactured, shipped around, used, used up, and sadly, for the most part, still sent to landfill or ends up in the natural environment. So to change this, one thing we know is we need to understand a lot more about our materials. Where are they? What's in them? What could we do with them? So I would propose a question. What if we saw stuff as information? What if we looked at all of these materials spanning around the globe, moving around, as billions and trillions of bits of data? This is an inspiring question to us at Google, because as you probably know, we love a good data challenge. And it really enables us to think about the role that we can play in utilizing our technology, our platforms, and our expertise to partner in advancing this critical mission that we're all on together. So our vision is actually kind of simple. We want a circular Google in a sustainable world. We need to bring in circularity from the start so today's products can become tomorrow's inputs. We also need to keep our products and materials in use, keep things going as long as possible, of course being mindful of safety and quality. And lastly, we need to promote safe chemistry and healthy materials, because once we put a product out into the world, we can't change its chemistry. So we need to know it's safe for people and planet. So a lot of this links up, Heather, with some of the themes that we've heard this week, uh, and a lot about technology, and specifically around uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, Shauna Rappaport hosted uh, a session on Wednesday around AI in circularity, and we talked uh, really about a lot of different technologies throughout this. In fact, Shauna wrote about this in her Wednesday uh, Verge newsletter. Um, and you wrote a piece that came out just as the conference was opening about how artificial intelligence helps recycling become more circular. Now, I have to explain that because I always assumed recycling was circular, but what's going on here? <laughs> so, um, actually, it is circular, but it could be even more circular. And so, what I will specifically mention is that, um, well, first of all, artificial intelligence is one of my little, you know, pet topics, like the blockchain, um, and I'm looking a lot at how it can play a role in, in various processes, right, that are associated with sustainability. So I interviewed a couple of companies, specifically AMP Robotics, which is here at the conference, or was here at the conference, and um, is part of the panel you just mentioned. And what they're doing is they're using vision systems to inform the robotics on, on the recycling equipment that they sell. And so they can get to a much higher degree of sophistication with how they sort out different plastics. So for example, they can pull out the plastics of a specific color, of a specific label, of a specific um, transparency, translucency, or a specific, ultimately, like a specific material. And what why that's more circular is because they can they can sort out those um, types of materials at a much larger scale. The other piece of their technology is that these robotics can handle um, like basically twice the amount that a human can handle. The throughput? The throughput, the, the, the amount that they can sort. Um, they can handle up to 160 pieces per minute. That, and at a high degree of accuracy. So if you can train it, 
if you, if you can train a human to do this, you can train this particular system to do this. And so that is, um, that's something that it makes it more circular because it's gonna, it's, maybe, it's, maybe the better word is scalable, right? Well, and this is really critical right now because as we look at recycling systems, certainly in North America and probably beyond, well, definitely beyond, um, they're either non-existent or partially effective or broken or damn near broken. And, and so these are the kinds of technologies that are gonna get those recycling rates back up or in some cases you know, the, the, where there's been low recycling rates like with plastics and particularly mixed plastics, this kind of intelligence that's brought from AI, it, it could make a difference. I mean, I know I've been hearing recycling officials from really all over the place talk about the fact that the system is peaked. It, you know, we've hit peak collection and we're nowhere near what it needs to be. It's 40, 50%, in some cases, maybe a little bit higher in a few. Uh, so we're gonna need this, these kinds of technologies, AI and optical sorting and a number of other things to get recycling where it needs to be. And the recycling, when we get it near where it needs to be, we'll be creating the raw material for the circular economy to be able to put that plastic back into circulation. Now, we've talked to plastic, plastic companies right now. They talk about their goals, you know, the, the chemical companies that make the polymers for plastics, that their goal is to make more and more of their plastic out of used plastics. And that the technology's existed for a while, but it's just the collection and sorting is the, is the barrier. Yeah, and this particular company, um, but also can help the brands, the big brands. So, like, you can find, a, you can look at a logo on a product and get it back to that original manufacturer, and then they can do what they want with in in, in their stream, right? So, it kind of addresses the whole take back issue. Um, so, depending on what they want to do it with it, it, it could be an, a ni nice solution for them. Um, I mentioned AMP Robotics. There's also a company that's been around much longer time, Tamra. They got their start um, in in Norway, and uh, they were one of those reverse vending machines, you know, the ones you would feed the bottles. You put the bottle in and it gives you money. It spits, it spits money out. They're also highly focused on this issue um, of, of, identifying, of identifying materials, and um, they're using lasers and, and other sensors to help identify the materials and layering that with artificial intelligence as well. So that's another company to watch. One of the things we've been talking about a lot this week is Loop, the service created by TerraCycle out of Trenton, New Jersey. And uh, we had uh, Tom Zaki, the CEO of TerraCycle, talking about that. We had a number of, it came up a, a bunch in the uh, summit we had on, on Tuesday morning. And we've had some articles, one of them by my old friend Scott Case, who lives like you do, Heather, in the uh, tri-state area of New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey. That's uh, one of the, that's the U.S. pilot launch of Loop, and then, of course, also in France. So uh, he wrote about his experience, and, and you have your own. Yeah, I do, I do. And actually, it was great to compare notes with Scott, because... Uh, I've been trying to order for the last several weeks. It's been out for a couple of weeks, just before Memorial Day. So first talk a little bit about what this is and, and why you're kind of excited about it, okay. why you signed on. Okay, so I'll back up. I am a, a fan of the milkman model. I used to get my milk and eggs and butter um, with my family from uh, a, a dairy delivery man. And so Loop is really about taking that concept, the concept of a, a great container, right, a milk bottle of a container that could be reused and refilled and cleaned, of course, 
and applying it to other products. And so Loop from TerraCycle is a consumer products initiative. They have some great delivery partners. Um, UPS, Kroger and Walgreens are, are now involved at the retail level, as well as great, uh, obviously, consumer brands like P&G. Um, you've got Haagen-Dazs brand in there. Um, lots, of, lots of different things that, that you would find. And, and, and actually, a lot of like smaller brands, right? So there's some great organic, organic brands and people that are, are coming to market in this way. Okay, so you've got this system where you can uh, order things and then return mm -hmm. the packaging and then you get a new one if you want. Are you signed up? What's going on? So uh, I did sign up. Uh, the service went live just before Memorial Day, the end of May here in the United States, and have not managed to order until this week because nothing that I wanted to order was available. Like what? So, for example, uh, and this was Scott's, this was an issue with Scott too, Haagen-Dazs ice cream. Um, they only had it in vanilla, and I am a vanilla fan, but I really, really want the strawberry. It is still not available. But some of the other products, so the things that I really want to test is such as um, Cascade dishwasher uh, detergent and, how, and the, the way that they're delivering that and, and, and laundry soap. Um, and some of these other things that I'm going to be trying in a different model, like pasta and some dry goods, gar garbanzo beans and so forth, they just haven't been available. So finally, over this past weekend, I uh, was uh, able to order some things. And um, I actually even, uh, my first delivery arrived while I was at the conference this week. So Cool. And uh, so you'll be writing about this uh this uh, sort of right now, this service, it's kind of plain vanilla, uh, yeah. and you'll uh, <laughs> figure out how, how we get strawberries mm -hmm. and, and other pieces of this that are more robust. Yeah, and I want to just give you, share a couple of initial impressions. One is that you're going to be shocked um, because you won't necessarily have been thinking about what you need to do to, to, to get a, a reusable container, which is you, you're going to pay a deposit. So um, just as you were paying, paying deposits on bottles in the past, you are going to be paying a deposit on the container for these products, as well as the tote bag that they come in. So the loop, the, the way that they are packaging um, the, the products to make sure they get to you safely, they're, they're, they're packaging them up in a um, tote bag um, and then a way of keeping it closed, right? The little plastic thing, but it's a, but it's a reusable plastic, it's like compostable or something like this. I mean, so... There's, there's some good stuff and bad stuff, and you'll, you'll read more about it online. And this, the idea here is that we now have our trash bin and we have our recycling bin or maybe a couple different recycling bins that we, we would also add to that, a reuse bin, and that's what this tote bag wants to uh, become. Yeah, so if you don't have a lot of space, you're, you might be a little un, um, uncomfortable with that. And actually, some of these containers aren't quite the right size for a pantry. So you have to, you might get it at home and, and, and think and have to re repackage it at home or, or in a, you know, in a pretty container on your kitchen counter. Clearly a work in progress, but we'll look forward to hearing more of your personal experience and maybe some others uh, from our listeners uh, will uh, tell us about how they're closing the loop with loop. One issue that sustainability professionals always grapple with is how to certify and verify what they're doing with a product and a process. And circularity adds a whole new twist to that. Here to discuss what can be done and what we should be developing further is Bill Hoffman. He's a senior scientist with UL and he 
in, in charge of their environment and sustainability services. And for those of you who don't know well, you should, um, they are the ones that, that have all of the wonderful verifications of safety and, and other different features on products. And so, Bill, thank you for joining us at Circular 19. Thanks for inviting me, Heather. So, as I mentioned, um, circularity, it adds a whole new twist to what sustainability professionals have to worry about um, and how they have to look at their products. What is this sort of general buzz among your clients um, about the circular economy? There's a lot of interest in what circularity means, how to define it, what, how companies can implement it, and they're really trying to explore what that means for them. Um, looking at where the materials are coming from, uh, what goes into the products, they really are trying to figure out where to start. So where should they start? I mean, they're probably doing things already that would, would be a good, good place. We find that companies are already, you're absolutely right, we're doing a lot of things that really lead into circularity. Uh, recycled content, zero waste, recyclability, reuse, where they're getting their materials from, can they refurbish and rebuild products. All of these are things that they're already doing that really lead to a broader circularity message. And so companies maybe don't even realize it, but they're already tr starting to participate in the circular economy. So what is it they need to look at more deeply in order to get that extra, extra scale, that extra step? Well, we find that uh, companies are becoming much more concerned about where the materials are coming from and how they're sourced. Are they really recycled content? Is it post-consumer, pre-consumer? Where did they really come from? And so they're starting to dive much deeper into their supply chain, look at the origins of these materials. Um, in some cases, traditionally, we might have called it closed cycle recycled content. Uh, but for companies nowadays, that concentration recycled content may be very deep in their supply chain, three, four suppliers away from where they're actually using the material. And one thing about a closed cycle or a closed loop uh, is that it's also very open. In other, in, in other words, it has to look at other sectors. So is that something that's a little bit different? We find that companies are, uh, the traditional sources of recycled content that are where it's segregated are, are really starting to be used up. I mean, there's a lot of opportunity there, but there's also not as much material available as you might think. And so they're looking at other sources of material beyond their traditional industries, uh, trying to combine materials from other companies, uh, different types of recycled content, uh, mass balance where there have pooled resources coming in. How do we allocate that out when we don't know exactly which product the material is going to end up in? And so there's a lot of innovative work going on with companies and their supply chains to try to get more recycled content from as many sources as they can. Do you have any examples that you can cite of, of people that are thinking about this in the right way? There, we work with a lot of different companies. The leaders are really trying to implement this. In a lot of cases, they don't want to talk about it yet until they've really finished it. But I know companies are working in uh, looking at mixed sources of plastics and how do we turn those back into new plastic, looking at batteries and cobalt, looking at uh, gold, aluminum. There's a lot of work that's been done. Uh, I can mention Apple, for instance, that announced 100% recycled content uh, product, uh, their aluminum, earlier this year. Uh, that's a great example of companies that are diving deeper and managing their supply chain to get that recycled content. 
Okay, so people are trying to get started. So what's your advice about things that they should look at more closely to help them with that? I know a lot of people struggle with like, oh my gosh, where do I start? It is a big, it looks like a big problem. If you're just looking at this, trying to figure out what it means to be circular, it, it looks like it's an intimidating thing. If you concentrate on these pieces, that, things that you might already be doing, as I said, you know, like recycle content, like recyclability, like reuse, if you think about those in the bigger picture of what circularity means, you're already on that road to being a more circular company. So my suggestion would be continue to do that. Look at it in more detail. Do more of it. Once you put together all of the different pieces, you may be doing more in circularity than you think. But we still have a lot to do and just keep at it and do more of it. Looking forward to hearing more about those examples in the future. Thanks, Bill, for joining us here at Circularity 19. Thank you. One of the people I met with at Circularity 19 this week was Erin Simon. She is the Director of Sustainability Research and Development for World Wildlife Fund. Welcome to Green Biz 350, Erin. Thanks so much for having me. So I have to ask, because it is a pretty darn cool title, what exactly do you do besides the fancy name? Yeah, so WWF thinks it's really strategic to work with companies, right? We see them as a powerful lever for change. And so to work with them, though, you have to take a lot of the complex science and information out there and help them to understand that in order for them to be expected to be able to do anything with that, let alone prioritize in this world of pretty complicated, large global issues, like where do they start and where do they have the biggest opportunity? So what I do and what my, what my team is responsible for is translating all that information out there in a way that it makes sense, that we can visualize it so they can understand what role they have to play, where their greatest impact can be, and then help them to you know, start working there and, and help them to drive that change that we're hoping to see. Now, one of the projects that you're working on, uh, something you introduced in May of this year, is a resource called Resource Plastic. So what is the intent of this tool? So Resource Plastic is World Wildlife Fund's implementation mechanism. It's, it's our activation hub for all of those companies out there who are looking to take those pretty ambitious commitments that they've made and turn them into meaningful, measurable change, right? We have companies that are being held accountable in a lot of cases for the plastic pollution problem. And so they're trying to figure out what are, you know, what's that clear roadmap for success, you know, in all the activities that they're trying to do. And so we're going to use resource as a mechanism to aggregate that, break down some silos and make sure that all the things we're doing are adding up to the change we want to see, which is no plastics in nature. So you call it an activation hub. Could you be a little bit more um, specific about what it is? Is it a, a technology system? Is it, is it you talk to people? What, 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 what does this engagement mean? I think to begin with, you have to, in order to do something that is going to be meaningful and measurable, you have to be able to understand what it is and measure it in the first place, right? So at the, you know, the foundation of resource is going to be a, an accounting framework, a plastic pollution um, tool, which will help companies to say, what am I making? Like, where is it coming from? Is it recycled content, bio-based, virgin? What am I making it into? And where is it going in the world? So then I can determine what its fate is. Is that thing being reused, recycled, composted, incinerated, landfilled, leaked? Um, 
that having that sort of that footprint you know uh, clarified allows us to say okay where are my hotspots? Where have I? Where am I, Where is my? Where am I losing the most product? Where have I lost all that opportunity? And then ask why. Right? Is that because I need better legislation? Is that because I have a material that's not recyclable there, or a recycling system that doesn't have the technology to recycle that? And so, what are those interventions? And how can I do those with others? Because when you're measuring things the same way and asking the same questions, companies are going to find that they are trying to do the same thing in the same place. And then you can get that scale that comes with collective action. And that's how it's going to happen faster, because this is a pretty urgent issue. We don't have a lot of time. So I just want to understand, people have not been measuring this up to this point? You know, that's, that's a really interesting thing, because you would imagine, right, when you say, like, what am I making and where is it going? You have to assume that that information is out there. And that's been something we've been learning through the process of piloting it that is not as readily accessible in apples-to-apples language, like in, in, in language that can turn into, um, I have this many tons of this many PET bottles or PET trays or LDPE films going to this many places and what's happening to it there, because we even have, we have worse data on that fate. So it's about helping to translate all of those systems, like those ordering procurement systems and, um, and sales data into information that we can use to get a picture of where these materials are going and what's happening to then make decisions. So it's, it hasn't been aggregated yet. It's a big gap in, the, in this system right now. So I'm probably going to put you a little bit on the spot with this, but you know, obviously you just announced it. Um, is there a is there a goal in, or an endpoint in which you hope to have the first sort of information in there, the first data? What what's the the timeline on being able to get sort of that that snapshot? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's really important that we actually act and deliver on this quickly. We are in the piloting phase through the end of December, and we have a goal for the first companies, the first resource members, to be. Um, reporting out a year from launch, which is in May of 2020. We want, want to have companies reporting for the first time because the expectation in resources that you will report year over year on your progress. And that's not just because we want to make sure progress is happening, but we need to be check, double checking that what we're doing is actually what we need to have so we can um, have a, that feedback loop. So the goal will be to have those first companies report in May, but then beyond that, we want to have more companies signed up by May, right? We want to have an additional 10 companies who are already doing this, and that's in the U.S. alone, what is happening in other countries. And so for WWF, this will be a global platform platform and other country offices will be doing the same thing. So do you, you do have people that are going to pilot this right right away? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so six companies have already agreed to pilot this. That's Coca-Cola, P&G, Tetra Pak, Keurig, Dr. Pepper, Starbucks, and McDonald's. And so though they're, they're the principal members who signed on and said, we agree that this is a gap, that we want to have a mechanism to be able to deliver on these commitments that we have. We agree to help you test out that methodology and, that, and to use that to continue to report on those goals year over year. Mm -hmm. And, and as, as we all know, reporting and being transparent is a very important sort of consumer engagement mm -hmm. um, strategy and being able to talk about and being able to be honest about what you're not doing right is very important. So just to kind of move forward from like what you hope comes out of this information, is there a phase two of, of, of what we, we hope to see out of this activation hub? So I have a couple of visions for phase two, which may be a little bit of boiling the ocean, so bear with me. But, you know, beyond the fact that we want to, like, we want to learn if what we're doing is actually changing anything, we're talking about a 
fully broken like material system right now. And so this should also create a lot of incentives and um, signals to the other players in the chain, you know, and that's cities, that's consumers, that's um, municipalities and waste management and government and legislators. Like all of those folks, like when there's big commitments being made and companies are reporting on them, hopefully that's sending signals that they need to do their part too because we need everybody to lean in on this issue. And so that's really like, fundamentally for resource plastic, a key piece. Beyond that, we need to do this for metals and for glass and for pulp and paper. So what does resource metal, resource glass, resource like e-waste look like so we can continue to be better stewards of those resources overall? And then how do we turn this into impact, right? This is moving tons of material and so we need to make sure we have science-based targets for what this account like what does this mean from an environmental impact from those you know planetary boundaries that we need to really think about from biodiversity land use chemical use etc so i've got a lot of i've got a lot of next phases it's just a matter of getting it done and getting everybody on board ah so the immediate call to action. You have one? I do. Yeah. We need everybody to participate. We need everybody to measure their plastic footprint and we want to do it the same way so that we can all be driving change in that system that we share, right? The system we all depend on to get materials back. So we'd love for people who are interested to go to www.resource-plastic.com and they can learn more. Erin, thanks for spending time with Green Biz 350. Thank you so much for having me. appreciate it. One of the big topics at Circularity 19 this week has been materials reuse. What sorts of materials can you reuse? What should you reuse and when? Here to talk with me a little bit about General Motors policy and philosophy on this issue is Lauren Smith. Lauren, thanks for joining us on Green Biz 350. Very happy to be here. So you've been thinking about the issue of reuse for about a year and particularly plastics, right? So we, we talk about plastics in ocean, we talk about plastics in, in lots of products that we, we see, packaging in particular, single-use plastics, but also in bottles and so forth. So what is GM's general philosophy as far as plastics reuse? How does it look at this material as a, as a resource uh, and an opportunity? Well, at GM, we are really very closely looking at plastics now, in particular as we have signed on to a, a new commitment called Next Wave. And within that, it is a cross-industry collaborative with, um, well, multiple corporates as well as an NGO. And we are truly focused on looking at ocean-bound plastics, so those that haven't hit the waterways yet, and seeing how might we turn off the tap and keep those in our economy and out of our oceans. And in doing so, we'll be bringing along not only other corporates, but suppliers as well to build and signal to the market that these plastics truly are of value. So can you be a little bit more specific about the kinds of plastics you mean? Is this like plastic bags or bottles or all of the above? Really all of the above. So at GM we have looked in the past at uh, plastic bottles in particular for one initiative that we have is our Do Your Part program where we've taken plastic bottles not only from our manufacturing facilities in some areas but also as well as our um, communities and have worked with an entire supply web and made those into a fleecy material for HVAC filters, uh, coats for the homeless as well as a fabric that is for insulation on our uh, engine. 
So one of the things that fascinates me is the concept of a closed loop, right? So someone's closed loop might be someone else's open loop, and you can't keep these materials to yourselves. You have to look at other partners, and I think that's part of the the philosophy and the, the spirit of, of Next Wave. Um, so how do you, what sorts of conversations do you have to have with Adele or another company? Like what is it that you're talking about to, to figure out um, how to reuse this stuff? So a lot of the conversations have centered around where we can uh, gain this supply. A lot of the mismanaged plastics are typically coming out of Southeast Asia um, as well as Africa. And so Dell in particular has been doing a lot of work to identify these sources and not only identify the sources, but take it down the next level and look at it from a social perspective of, you know, the uh, worker well-being, safety, uh, you know, fair wages, and that sort of uh, social impact of having a response supply chain and so in sharing those experiences and how we might go about either tagging on to the supply chain and making it uh, and scaling it up with Dell and the other members of Next Wave or how we may go out and create our own perhaps looking at a source of plastics that is closer to home um, that's that's a lot of what's discussed during the the meetings and it's very open uh, it's an open collaborative so everyone is very transparent sharing lessons learned which is wonderful and it also gives that sense of security to really share uh, you know individual case studies and successes as well as um, you know some of the challenges that people have run into which is wonderful because as we all go about this together you know why why reinvent the wheel we need to learn from each other's um, mistakes and, and wins as well so one of the things that you have to navigate internally is is who you should talk to in order to figure out how to reuse these things so designers and probably legal department so Talk to me about the, the conversations that you need to have internally in order to get to the right place where maybe you can do something, maybe you're not going to do something. Who, who do you consult internally to, to help make these decisions? Right. Well, I'll back up to when we just first signed on to the agreement, which was last year. So 2018, it was end of August, beginning of September. But leading up to that, you know, it was a lot of work very closely with our legal team, communications, our um, purchasing, materials, engineering, and design teams to talk to them about not only what the next wave initiative is, but what it means to General Motors and their thoughts and feelings on it and how they could contribute to this mission. And so by bringing all of our stakeholders in early, um, we were able to get that buy-in. And in having all of those conversations, like I said, up front, by the time that contract came around to sign, all the groups were, were on board, they knew what it was, and everybody was very excited to embark on the journey together. So ocean-bound plastics probably live in rivers and in lots of local, very local resources, local waterways. Um, so how do you engage those local communities to get involved? Like what, what sorts of outreach has GM done um, or does it you know, what other companies should do in this space. Right. Well, we're at the very beginning phases of our journey, so determining where we might best uh, use those plastics, whether it's in a, a part for our vehicles or perhaps in packaging um, from our, you know, customer care and after sales side to, you know, packaging of different parts and components of the vehicles as they come in for perhaps assembly. But as far as where we may reach out, you know, we are headquartered in the Great Lakes, a huge body of water, which is um, for 
fortunate for us that there are also a couple of other Great Lakes companies engaged in Next Wave. There's Trek Bicycles as well as Herman Miller. And so thinking about it from that perspective, saying, all right, here we are in this you know, invaluable resource. How might we tackle the ocean-bound or lake-bound plastics that are close to home in the Great Lakes states? Um, and so, like I said, we're at our beginning phases of our journey there, and we're going to collaborate with those other companies and our local communities to find the best solution. Uh, but it's really exciting for General Motors to be able to have that kind of impact on our, our home state of Michigan. Well, that's our 350 podcast for this week from Circularity 19. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organizations, stories, and events we mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, I always like to point it out, check out our other podcast called Center Stage, the best of live interviews from Greenbiz events like Circularity. Our email address is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week for another edition of Green Biz 350, this time from our usual purchase in California and New Jersey. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group and the entire Circularity team, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.